Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a really big deal for me. Um, more than almost any uh, conversation uh, I've, I've had. It. My guest today is Julia Cameron, author of, among other things, The Artist's Way. Uh, I mean, she's a successful screenwriter and she writes musicals and she's written many, many books. Uh, but Julia, your, your work comes up on this podcast and in my life all the time. And I was saying to my wife earlier today, it, it doesn't just feel like I'm talking to a, a force of nature. It feels like I'm talking to nature itself. Uh, and um, it would be hard to overstate the impact your work has had on my life. I could make a really credible statement that I wouldn't have the life that I'm leading if it wasn't, if it weren't for your book. Uh, it, it actively and definitively changed my life and it's changed the life, uh, lives of many of the listeners of my podcast too. And I know, you know, that Tim Ferriss on his podcast talks about morning pages. I'm the person who told him about morning pages because uh -huh. of what they meant to me. And so I just want to start by saying thank you and tell you how grateful I am for the work that you've done. Well, you're very welcome. And it's exciting to me to feel that I am a building block uh, in someone else's dream. So I'm happy to hear uh, that I was that my book was useful. Uh, it feels wonderful to me. Uh, and I'm happy to meet you. And do, do you do you walk around with the awareness what is it like what, what does it feel like to walk around with the um awareness of how many lives you've shifted in that way uh but both the artists that you've helped and then the audiences of those artists work uh, do you do you allow yourself moments of really owning that level of influence and impact you've 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 had no, I don't. <laughs> um, I, I sometimes will be alone dining at a cafe and someone will come up to me and say, do you know you look like Julia Cameron? <laughs> and I will say, oh, I, I am Julia Cameron. And then they will say something like, your book changed my life. It made me a novelist. So... Um, that one-to-one -one contact is exciting for me. Uh, and I feel like people want a chance to say thank you. Uh, and I want a chance to say, you have to understand, I provided the tools, but you used them. Yes, that, that's, that's true. And I understand that instinct. And it actually is a great way, I think, to take the pressure off yourself to have to be the version of you that's in the books all the time, which I imagine is could be a lot of pressure if you allowed that to happen. Well, I find that if I keep my own creativity afloat, uh, then I am less worried about my public persona. <laughs> I mean, yes, totally. Yeah, I agree with that uh, completely. Uh, it, is, um, it is a remarkable thing that you've done, you know, um, and I, I don't want to allow the beginning of this to be, I don't want, um, I don't want it to be kind of de rigueur and glib the, what I said, be, because I was a, um, 
I was a miserably blocked person. You know, uh, I was deeply worried that I was going to turn into a bad father to my, I only had one child at that point to my child. And uh, because I was stifling this, this barely a whisper of a dream of what I might be able to be and the work I might be able to produce. And my closest friend gave me the book and it was as though the world opened up. You know, uh, I remember my first, the morning pages being the tool. Uh, but then also, I remember the first artist dates I went on and what that felt like. Can you, and, and how goofy it felt at first, Julia, and then the freedom that came with them and the way I felt afterwards walking down the street. Can you talk a little bit about those tools and, and about how you came up with them? Because I, I, I I will say it, it worked for me like a miracle, right? I'm, I'm, I'm unlike you, I'm not spiritual, I'm an atheist. But the work that you, the tool that you came up with, within a year or something like that of having read the thing, I had an entire career as a, as a creative person, you know? So how, how did this happen for you? How did you need these things? How did you come up with them? And, and, and specifically those two tools? Well, I want to say, that the two basic tools of the of the artist's way are something called morning pages, which you're talking about, which are three pages of longhand morning writing uh, about anything. Uh, they are just a form of meditation where you're writing down your cloud thoughts instead of sitting there enduring them. Uh, so uh, you write down... I didn't like what Jeff said to me in the meeting yesterday. My car has a funny knock in it. I forgot to buy kitty litter. Uh, everything from the sublime to the petty. Uh, and what happens uh, is that it's as if you have a little teeny whisk broom and you're poking it into all the corners of your life and you're bringing the, de the debris that stands between you and your creativity you're bringing it into the center of the floor where you can actually do something about it. So uh, you had several questions all at once. Uh, I'll restate them. I can restate them, which is how did you... So I've, I, I've said uh, on this podcast that of like 300 episodes, I guarantee you 250 of them have, have, have had me say the words, you, you know, do the morning pages exactly as Julia Cameron describes them in The Artist's Way. And I describe them that way as, as well. But how did you know you needed these tools, Julia? And then how did you, how did you come up with these specific tools of the, the, the morning pages and the artist's date? Well, I think it's an interesting thing uh, that you said to me, I'm not a believer, I'm an atheist. Uh, and I have to say to you back, oh, well, I'm not an atheist. I'm a believer. Yes. Uh, and that what happened to me uh, was I was uh, beleaguered, as it sounds as if you were, uh, beleaguered by the Hollywood system. Uh, and I had written a movie uh, about quaaludes, uh, for a famous actor who called me up and said, it's brilliant. Uh, and then I couldn't get him on the phone again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And I thought, 
I need, I need a way to keep movies from breaking my heart. Uh, I had movies that were scuttled because of politics. And I was heartbroken. Uh, and I took myself to New Mexico. This was before New Mexico was hip. Uh, yes. And uh, I rented a little adobe house at the end of a dirt road. Uh, and I had a daughter who hated that I had transported her from busy New York to New Mexico, where there was nothing but cows. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I would get up before her, and I would go sit at an oak table that stared out at Taos Mountain, uh, which was just this sort of humpback marvel of a mountain. Uh, and I would write. Uh, and nobody told me to write three pages. But three pages seemed to be the amount I could get done before my daughter woke up. Yeah. And um, I found myself writing every day. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost. I'm a s screenwriter, and my movies are not getting made, and I'm heartbroken. Uh, and I would write this day after day. Uh, and then one day as I was writing, a character a woman, a painter named Johnny, came sort of strolling into my pages. Uh, and I found myself thinking, oh, my God, I don't need to be trapped as a Hollywood screenwriter dealing with rejection. I could perhaps write a novel. Yes. So uh, the pages suggested an alternative path for me. Uh, and I found myself writing a novel, uh, and then I found myself, um, what happens when you write flat out, uh, as you're certainly familiar, uh, if you write flat out, you're dipping into an internal well that has images. Uh, and if you overfish the well, the writing goes flat and halts. So I found myself thinking, I need to replenish my well somehow. Uh, and I began taking what I called artist dates, which were solo expeditions to do something fun. Uh, and this became a primary tool for me. Uh, and I, I finished the novel, uh, and I went back to New York uh, because I felt like I needed to be in the river of life and not in the little adobe house. Right. And um, when I got to New York, I was walking in Greenwich Village, uh, and I heard teach. And I thought, oh, my God, no, I don't want to be a teacher. I want to be an artist. Huh. Huh. So um, I called a girlfriend of mine to complain and she called me back and said, congratulations, you're now on the faculty of the New York Feminist Art Institute. Oh, that's I love that story. That's right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Your, your first class meets Thursday. Uh, you will be teaching creative unblocking. And I thought, oh, well, then I need to teach people about morning pages, doing morning pages. Uh, and I need to teach them about taking artist dates. Uh, and 
I need to teach them that there is a benevolent something. Uh, and I don't think it matters uh, if, if you consider yourself an atheist. I think what happens uh, is that we contact something powerful uh, and benevolent uh, that causes us to start trusting in the universe. Uh, sure. I understand that. And I think um, what happened with my first class was they started working the tools uh, and they began to unblock. And I had painters who were suddenly painting again, directors who were directing again, writers who were writing again. And I thought, oh my God, I'm on to something. So basically I was teaching people the tools that I had found useful myself. And did you notice immediately uh, a lightness about them? Because I've noticed when I've given your work to people and with specific instructions, you know, someone I'll be at lunch with somebody. Uh, in fact, a, a writer friend of mine, uh, uh, this is about 12 years ago, I guess, said, hey, can we have lunch? And we had lunch. And he starts complaining to me about such as uh, he'd written a, a couple of comedies that had gotten made, but poorly, and they'd been taken mm. away from him. And he hadn't been able to sell anything. And he thought his work had gotten worse. And his agents weren't returning his calls. This is a true story. And um, I wish I, I should have asked him if I could say his name, but he, uh, because he just wrote me two days ago. So I listened to him at lunch and I said, I can only say two words to you, Julia Cameron. And I bought him the artist's way. He could afford it. But I, I find actually it's a useful thing if you give the artist's way as a gift to somebody and you mm -hmm. say to them, you know, if you do this, if you really do this, you will become. A, a better version of yourself. And, and Julia, within a year, but shorter than a year, within six months, he'd written his first book, which was a young adult novel. He sold the three of them in a row uh, and completely found his voice as an artist, which was not in just writing those movies, but of course it's now led him back. And last week, his latest book was just an, uh, purchased by a studio. He's been hired to write the script. And, you know, he's had nonstop work for all these years. But what I noticed was when I saw him just even a month and a half later when he called me and he's like, can we get together for a quick coffee again? He was already lighter. And what, what you, have you thought about what it is in doing the... I saw it in his eyes. You, you know what I mean? I mean, I know you do because you, you've seen it so many times. What do you think it is about this act of writing these pages without ever reading them, writing these pages without, uh, uh, what are we defeating is the way I would ask it to you when we don't let ourselves question the way we're writing the pages? Well, I think uh, what you're doing is you're sort of sending a telegram to the universe and you're saying, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. <laughs> Yeah. This is what I want more of. This is what I want less of. Uh, and I, I think of it as if you're sort of uh, on a life raft in the ocean uh, and you're trying to contact the big boat to come save you. <laughs> uh, yes. And uh, yeah. so you're, you're sending the universe a telegram. Uh, and what happens uh, is that as you are writing, uh, your critic or your censor will speak up and will say, oh, Brian, you're being boring. 
And you'll say, thank you for sharing. <laughs> and huh. keep right on writing. Uh, and what happens with writing morning pages is that we are miniaturizing our, our critic or our censor, uh, our sense of doom and gloom. So as the voice of your critic speaks up uh, and, and says, oh, you can't try that, uh, you find yourself writing, perhaps I can try that. Uh, and what happens uh, is that the morning pages tutor you into expansion. Uh, and you go along, the first time something comes up, you think, I can't do that. The second time it comes up in the pages, you think, I don't think I can do that. Uh, the third time it comes up, you think, well, maybe I'll try that. <laughs> yes. And you do yes, try I, it. Yes, I do find that to be completely true. How do you, um, how do you square that thing of... Um, an idea coming up on the pages. One of the tenets of the pages that I love, though I battle with it, as I'm sure a lot of people do, right? When you're a professional writer and you're doing these pages, I, I'm, you know, I've done it now for over 20 years, every, pretty much every day of my life. Um, but still, sometimes you'll find yourself writing with a capital W, and and or I will, I'll find myself writing with a capital W, as though this is, these are Camus journal, you know, and I'm, uh, as though these are Camus journals, and someday they'll be read, and I have to remind myself they're going to be burned. I'm not going; these are not for anybody to read. Yet when I come up with an idea, as often happens in the pages, um, I sometimes panic. So I actually want to ask you: How do you square the don't go back and read them with? I just solved my third act problem. Uh, I wasn't even trying to, and I solved it. What, how do you, do you circle them and immediately write it, transfer them to another page? Like, I'm just asking you a really practical question that I've always wondered about how you, how you manage it. Well, what I find is that pages are a nudge. Uh, and, you know, when you're worried about, should I go back and reread them? Uh, because I have a splendid nugget. Uh, we're actually af afraid that we're going to lose the splendid nugget. Uh, and what I find is that pages are sort of a tough love friend. They, they bring it up again and again until you act on it. So I think what happens, um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, am I? Well, I've... Well, yeah, you are. Well, here's the, well, there's one very specific one. If you, Julia Cameron, are writing in your pages and a wonderful idea surfaces, not a scary idea necessarily, literally like, you know, you were right, you're writing about wanting to take a walk, but then suddenly you find yourself writing the answer to the thing you're struggling with in the work you're doing, whatever the thing you're writing is. Will you jot that down somewhere else so that you can remember it? Or will you just hope you remember it? Like, how do you, because sometimes I literally will get the breakthrough answer to the end of a, a TV season while I'm writing the pages. And I have sort of right afterwards, I'll just like speak it into my phone or something while I'm looking at the pages before I shut them. But do you, what do you do if you find like a good creative idea while you're doing them? I think you're asking me, am I cheating uh, if I uh, jot something down? Yeah. Uh, and I would say, Relax. Don't, right. don't worry that you're cheating. Uh, if you have the impulse to jot something down, let yourself jot something down. 
Uh, and uh, I wouldn't dream of standing between somebody and their creativity. Uh, and I recently had an experience. I was writing in my pages, uh, and I heard, you are ready to start a new project. Mm. And I thought, oh, dear God, I have no idea what that project could be. Uh, and what happened was that uh, the pages suggested start with songbirds. <laughs> so I've learned to be obedient to the pages. So yes. I, I took out a blank notebook uh, and I wrote down, listen, don't they sound lovely? Uh, and it turned out that was the opening line of a whole new play. Oh, I, I love that. But I was writing um, based on the pages. Uh, they would say to me, you don't need to know the story. The story. <laughs> and they would say, <laughs> just show up and write a scene. And I would think, but don't I have to link one scene to the next scene? So I, I ended up uh, starting on April 16th with your writing a new project and finishing on May 24th, uh, writing blindly following the pages. Uh, they would say, I will give you an idea. Don't worry. And I would think, don't worry. <laughs> and, and you wouldn't go to the pages though, trying to write. I, I just want to be clear for people listening. I, um, you're not showing up at the pages saying to yourself, I'm working on the, the new play in the pages. You still showed up to the pages absolutely. just writing whatever yeah, absolutely, came to mind. Absolutely, Brian. Right? That, I just want, the that, pages stay intact. Uh, and then later in the day, after I had walked the dog, uh, I would come back uh, and I would sit down and I would think, well, what's the first line of this? Uh, and and I would go yes. blindly forward. Uh, and what ended up happening, uh, I've written several plays, uh, and some of them are dark. Uh, and this play was suddenly tender. And I thought, oh, my God, uh, have I suddenly been rendered an optimist? Huh. Well, you picked an incredible time for it, I'll tell you that. Uh, for a sudden burst of optimism. Uh, I guess uh, yes. we can always use that. An amazing thing that you did that in such a, 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 a quick time, and it makes, it makes total sense and jibes with my experience. Something that just came into my head, which you hinted at when you said, you don't worry about your public persona so much as long as you're keeping your own creative fires stoked. Um, but I would think that the pressure to be creative when you're known as the creativity unblocker, that along the way, you might have had to joust with that. And, and, and did you? And, and did you just come to finding a way not to worry about that pressure? Well, I'll tell you. Um, when we started being locked down, uh, I found myself suddenly with empty days. I had my 
my morning pages. I had my dog walk. Uh, but other than that, the day was unscheduled. So I called a girlfriend of mine, a singer you may know named Judy Collins. Well, of course. Uh, yes, my, my father worked closely with Judy Collins and uh, was briefly her manager and helped her make albums. So yes, uh, that's awesome. Please tell her that Charles Koppelman's son says hello. It's not well, something I, I say on this podcast uh, ever, but tell her that. Well, I called Judy and said, how are you faring? And she said, oh, I'm writing music, I'm singing, I'm writing poetry, I'm working on a new book. And I thought, yes, and I am the queen of creativity and I am doing nothing. So I compared <laughs> myself to Judy uh, and I was greatly relieved when the guidance came up that I was going to be doing a new project because I thought, oh, now I have my self-respect back. I'm making some art. Uh, and I found, um, I found myself grateful for the flow of creativity uh, and sort of uh, embarrassed uh, that I had gone through such a season of doubt. Uh, so I think that's what you're talking about. Do, it is, of course, yes. Uh, the, the, and of course, that comparing things. So, you know, Judy Collins is a, a, someone who's made, been an important cultural figure for 50 years. And I mean, it's almost like a chapter you would write about not comparing yourself to somebody, like not allowing yourself to get to that place, which I actually had a question to ask you, which was, um, I, I, I tweeted something a couple of Thanksgivings ago where I, I said to people, hey, if, if you have a secret dream, it was Thanksgiving time. And I said, if you have a secret dream, please don't tell it to the extended family over Thanksgiving dinner uh, uh, unless you know you're not doing that mm -hmm. to sabotage yourself. If, if telling them is going to make you not do it, please don't tell them. Hold that secret through dinner. And, it, and I, the response to that was incredible. You know, people... We're so grateful for that bit, uh, that nugget. And you, it, it, I guess, how do, one question is, how do you, how do we train ourselves to kind of recognize that? Or how have you trained yourself to recognize it before you do it, before you put yourself in the place where you're going to make yourself feel bad? Well, I wish we could, uh, I wish we could dismantle our inner critic or censor. Uh, but my experience is uh, yes. that we make art despite them. Uh, we, we don't get rid of our fears. We learn to navigate our fears. Uh, and uh, I have a critic that I call Nigel. And Nigel has been with me since I was yes. 18 years old and first started writing full time. Uh, and... Nigel is a gay British interior decorator, uh, and nothing I do ever li lives up to his aesthetics. So I'm used to saying, oh, Nigel, there you are again. And uh, <laughs> what I have found with Nigel, uh, and this is along the lines of your questioning, you know, how do you keep one jump ahead of Nigel? 
Yes, and I, exactly my question. I think uh, this is where we have artist dates, which are a benevolent, expansive, solo expedition to do something that enchants or interests you. Uh, and I find uh, that a, a good artist date goes a long way toward diminishing the power of Nigel. But I also want to talk about a tool that's later in the book. Uh, it's called Blasting Through Blocks. Uh, and I think you're, you're talking about how do I stay ahead of Nigel? Uh, and what I have found is I get a sheet of paper and I list all of my fears and all of my angers connected to the project that I'm sort of stalled at. Uh, and then I yes. read them uh, out loud to someone who is for me what I call a believing mirror. Uh, and a believing mirror is somebody who sees your strength and your possibility, not somebody who has your second thoughts. So I write out yes. my blasting through blocks. I'm afraid this won't be any good. I'm afraid it'll be good and no one will know it. I'm af afraid to turn it into this editor. He always nitpicks. I'm afraid to turn it into him because he takes forever huh. to read. Uh, and I will become discouraged. So you write down your fears and your angers. Uh, and then hopefully... Uh, this is where you were talking about the Thanksgiving meal. You don't, you don't share the dream yes. with someone who will say, Oh, Brian, don't you think you might need something to fall back on? You say it, you share <laughs> yeah. it with somebody right. who says, Brian, that's a great idea. I can see you doing that. You have to train yourself to do that, isn't it? It's hard to train ourselves. Where, where do you, I, and you talk about this in your books. I've, I've read um, more than just the artist way of your books. And you do talk about why we sabotage. And sometimes you, 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 you say a tool that I, I personally loved, I found incredibly valuable. I don't remember what you call it, Julia, is when you go back and, and try to remember... Uh, uh, when someone discouraged you, when someone told you that not just run of the mill discouragement, when someone essentially said, you know, who do you, you're, you're foolish to think that you can be an artist, essentially, you're not special. And, and can you talk about the way in which in a creative recovery, uh, you are, are supposed to grapple with those memories, those people, what tools you have to sort of take their power away from them? Well, I think this is what we call the myths and monsters. So it's uh, early on in the book, uh, and it says, I want you to go back and identify creative monsters. Uh, and then when you remember the creative monster, I'd like you to write about it a little bit. Uh, and when you write about it a little bit, I'd like you to write a letter to the monster rebutting it. So I will tell you a story. When I wrote The Artist's Way, uh, I was, uh, you know, a Hollywood screenwriter, yes. uh, and I was represented at William Morris. Uh, and I 
showed the, the uh, artist's way to my William Morris movie agent. And the agent replied, oh, Julia, you're a screenwriter. Go back to screenwriting. Who would be, who would be interested oh, no. in this little book on creativity? Oh, I love this. These are my favorite stories. This so, is my favorite story. Uh, yeah, I think she has come to rue her words. Well, do, do, what, I want to go just granular for one second in this story because now, of course, it's absurd. You've sold millions and millions and millions and millions of books and you've changed millions and millions of lives and you're world famous. So now it's easy to look back on that moment and laugh. But can you actually talk about what that felt like in that moment, and equally importantly, what you then did to keep going. That's where the value here is, I think. So, Well, I, I think what we're talking about is my temper. I don't like bullies. Right. And uh, I think The Artist's Way was written as a sort of manifesto uh, to say, God damn it, we can't bully artists all the time. Uh, and so what happened uh, when I was told no one would be interested in this book uh, was that I began uh, Xeroxing it uh, and sending it to people uh, from all different walks of life. Uh, and I discovered, yes, indeed, there were people who were interested huh. by this little book. Did, did it hurt your feelings when she said that? I thought she was crazy. Uh, she wanted me to write a beauty <laughs> Oh, I love book. that you thought, she, so that's a great, powerful thing. And perhaps it's because you were already doing the pages and stuff. So you weren't, um, perhaps that made you less vulnerable to the rejection in a certain way, less emotionally vulnerable to the rejection because you were well, sort I, of in a, in a state of flow. Because many of us, upon getting that rejection, would go into a hole for a few weeks, right? Would not really know how to well, press on. When an expert, I talk about gatekeepers a lot, and, and because I've had the same experience as you, our first screenplay was rejected by all the agencies, and then you know it sold, and two minutes later they all tried to sign us. So I've seen this firsthand. But I do remember it being fairly crushing when they all passed. I remember feeling... I Vulner think very this vulnerable, is where you know? um, we're talking again about uh, believer, non-believer, uh, because what I found yes. was that when I did morning pages, and I faithfully did them, uh, I had a sense of a benevolent something that was looking out for me. Uh, and so... Uh, I had a place to vent, uh, to say, boy, damn her for being so damning. Uh, and I, I also yes. believe in guidance. I believe strongly that we are led. Uh, and I, in the artist's way, I talk about at the end of your morning pages, asking a question and listening for an answer. And so I would ask a question like, why 
was she so negative? Uh, and the, que- the answer would come back, she's frightened. Great. I love that. Yes. Yes. That makes complete sense to me. That makes complete sense. And that gives you a tremendous amount of power to keep, to keep moving forward. Well, in, I in think way, um, right? I also believe in what you might call destiny. Uh, I yep. had my movies scuttled by Paramount, uh, and I went to Chicago to visit my brother. Uh, and when I was in Chicago, uh, I was offered a job at the Chicago Tribune, a job at the Chicago Sun-Times, a job at Columbia College, uh, and I found myself thinking, oh, if I support myself with my journalism uh, and teach at Columbia College where they have film equipment, I can make a movie. I just have to be willing uh, to sort of take my own dare. Which would I rather do, make a movie or live in Hollywood as a frustrated screenwriter? Mm. So I moved to Chicago. I went to work at Columbia College. I wrote a tiny little script, a romantic comedy. I shot it using students. We had it. I I spent my Miami Vice money on film. It cost $78 for a roll of 16-millimeter film for 10 minutes. <laughs> so um, I... I made the film, uh, and then what happened was my sound was stolen. Uh, And this was Chicago, and they're like, lady, we've got bigger fish to fry than looking for your missing sound tapes. Let let me explain to people that sound on film, because people now don't make stuff digitally, on on film, sound is uh, always separate. So what happened uh, was... I asked myself the artist's way question, where does this loss point me? Uh, And I decided to dub the entire movie. And I dubbed the entire movie and edited it myself. uh, And it took about two years. Uh, And when it was finished, I submitted it to the London Film Festival and they accepted it. Uh, and when they reviewed it, they said, she's not an old coward, but she is funny. <laughs> but right. But in which, America, which you, yeah. uh, because the film was dubbed, it couldn't be released. So what I found myself doing was mourning my... Um, mourning my my film's demise. Uh, And that led me straight to writing The Artist's Way. It was the sense of loss coupled with a determination to win through in the end. Does that story resonate for you? Oh, it resonates enormously for me, of course. Uh, uh, I can think of many parallels, actually, uh, of the sort of professional disappointments of a certain kind uh, that, that, 
it also made me stubborn and 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 ready to do this work but always when the artists wait always when the morning pages were were happening i mean that's uh that's a thing that i, I is really important to say again here is that anytime anyone's heard me talking or looks at any of the movies that i've uh, written with my partner or, or directed or produced or the tv series is we've made the morning pages are always a part of that they're an everyday they're an everyday thing for my creative partner david is who gave me the book originally david levine and he uh too does them uh, every day and so they really do help because they make you ask yourself these questions um and often the question is, am I going to let it end this way? Am I going to kind of person who's going to let the whims of the town dictate whether or not I'm an artist? And for me, the answer always ends up being, no, I'm not going to let that dictate. I'm going to do this work. Um, and that's a direct result of um, what happens when you do the pages. But I have to ask you this, because some days, Julia, uh -huh. I really don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It's annoying to have to do it. And it's like, there they are staring at me. I also practice transcendental meditation. So some days I do the pages first. Some days I do the meditation first. It depends on what I feel like I need. But I do both every single day. But the meditation is always sort of like, you know, doing TM is sort of delightful in a way. The pages are delightful, but there are days. And I, I, what is it about those days when you just don't want to do them? Is it because you know you're going to, find truths out that are going to force you into action, do you think? And do you ever have days you don't want to do them? All right. So you have several questions. So we'll yes. start We'll start with uh, when I meditate, it's delightful. Uh, and often what happens when people take a problem into meditation is that at the end of 20 minutes of meditation, they don't feel they need to do a thing about it. Uh, <laughs> they've they've trans <laughs> transcended it. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> if, if you take a problem into morning pages, uh, at the end of your morning pages, you find yourself thinking, I goddamn well better do something about this. Yes. So the pages, uh, the three pages of longhand morning writing, first thing in the morning, before your defenses are in place, when you are authentically feeling how you feel, uh, the pages are a goad to action. Uh, and uh, I think we sometimes don't want to be cornered into action. Uh, and we know that the pages will corner us into action. Yeah, they sure so do. We, so we, we'd, like, we'd like to avoid the dare. Uh, and uh, I... I would advise pages first, meditation second. Yes. My, my meditation teacher, Bob Roth from David Lynch Foundation, you know, lobbies the other way. And I, I do, I, I will say I go through big, I go through big periods of doing, uh, they're the first, no matter what, those are the first two things I do, um, in the day. There's no doubt about it. Um, and my family knows that and members of my family do the pages also. Uh, and, and, um, Sometimes I do meditate first, but, but I agree with you. It's, um, they, they do different things. Um, the meditation calms anxiety, which is useful to me. The pages do too. I find in, in concert, they work very well 
together. Do you still meditate? Because I read an interview with you where you said sometimes you don't meditate. So I'm wondering if you still do it. Well, I, I find that I call my morning pages my meditation. Uh, and then I ask for guidance and I s sit quiet. Uh, and listen for guidance, and then I write that down. Uh, and I think I'm a good Westerner, uh, you know, that we have a hard time sitting and doing nothing for 20 minutes. Yes. But can, uh, yes, that makes total sense. Does it can you relate to the feeling of what you said is true minutes. about feeling cornered sometimes by them because you will have to be prompted to oh, absolutely. action? absolutely. But do, does Julia Cameron herself ever not uh, want to do them? When I travel, uh, I, I want to say, oh, I can't get up at 5.30 and do pages. So I wait and I'm doing them later in the day. And what I find about that is it's a risky prospect. Uh, huh. If you're doing your pages later in the day, you're reflecting on a day you've already had, and you're powerless to change. Yes. Uh, and if you do your pages first thing, it brings you into contact with what I call choice points. Uh, and these are places in your day where you can actually take an action or make a decision. Yes. Yes. Uh, I relate to this because the reason that sometimes I did th that it flipped and I do meditation first is because when, as you know, because of the life you've lived, you know what the life of someone running a TV series is. And so you understand like when I have to be on set at 6 AM, uh, it can be, and which means I have to be up at four, I can meditate in the car. I can meditate right when I get up. And then you're right. I, the days that I go to a rehearsal on set first and then repair to the office to do the morning pages, it doesn't really feel exactly the same. Um, they're not the same as when it's immediately at home. It, it is different. It's still worth doing, by the way. Like if you miss, uh, to me, maybe, uh, uh, right? Yes. I, I feel like if you miss it, in that situation, I, I want to say do them. when I'm teaching people, I say, I have a tool for you. It's a nightmare. <laughs> You'll have to get up early. You'll have to move your page, your hand across the page. <laughs> uh, a lot of times people will say to me, Julia, yes, I'm so much faster by computer. Can't I do them by computer? Uh, and I will say fast is not what we're after. We're after depth and authenticity. So uh, I think it's a little bit like um, when people are trying to do them by computer and race through them. Uh, it's as if they're in a car going 85 miles an hour going, oh my God, was that my exit? Yes, I, I always tell people that. That to me is um, an absolute rule. So if, if I'm willing to... Uh, if I'm willing to sort of negotiate back and forth between when I do transcendental meditation and when I do morning pages, the longhand part is sacrosanct for me. It makes all the difference in the world. Uh, and well, you might, I, you know, the, you said my play came so quickly, uh, and that that was an experience you had had. Uh, I write everything longhand. Yes. The play I wrote longhand uh, and That's incredible. Then I have so you wrote um, the play a wonderful too. assistant who is able to decipher my writing, and she types it up, uh, and 
then when I look at a further draft, I sometimes look at it on the computer. Uh, I will tell you, uh, I, for a long time, I saved my morning pages, telling myself, if I ever write a memoir, I'm going to need them. Uh, and then I was assigned to write a memoir. <laughs> and I, I wrote Floor Sample, uh, and I, I found that I never once went back and right. looked at my yes. morning pages to double-check myself. Uh, what yes. I think happens uh, is that when you write morning pages by hand, uh, you are in effect making a, an indelible imprint on your psyche. So it isn't necessary to go back and check the longhand writing. You will remember all too clearly. Yeah, I, I have instructions to burn them, and I will get rid of them. I, I have no interest in anyone reading them, and I agree. Because it also takes the pr knowing that for me, and I'm sure I imagine this is part of why you say this stuff um, about the morning pages is if I thought they were going to be read or even I had to read them again or anyone was going to, it would make me self-conscious in the writing of them. I would want to write them with a capital W instead of just allowing myself to throw down whatever I'm thinking. Um, and uh, there's a great freedom in that, isn't there? Well, I think you're exactly right, Brian. I think that what we're after with morning pages is in the same way that you can't replay yes. a meditation, you can't replay morning pages. Uh, and I often think that it there should be a little proviso, cremate <laughs> yes. the pages, then worry about yeah, the body. I, I agree with you. What a... Um, one thing that I, I, I wanted to ask you about is the function of the inner critic in rewriting, because I find it valuable in, in rewriting. And so for me, part of the fencing that I have to do is finding a way to write my first drafts um, very freely and, and, and with the critic at bay, the way that I've kept you keep Nigel at bay during the writing of first drafts, first drafts of scenes. But... Uh, for second drafts, for me, it's useful to allow the inner critic to show up. Um, I want to talk about something called green sheets. Okay, please do. Uh, which uh, I don't think I have put in any book. Maybe I have and I've forgotten. Uh, but this is what I, what I do. I write my first drafts with Nigel at bay. Then I go through through my, my writing, uh, and I write when it is, where it is, who it is, and what happens. Uh, and I, I call them green sheets yes. because I used to use green paper, and I would t tape them together. Uh, and so I would go all the way through the script uh, making my green sheets, which are, are really uh, sort of an outline. The rule is one line per scene. Uh, and then I would say to Nigel, well, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> and what yeah. I would often find was that by looking at the green sheets, 
I had a sort of track of my movie or my book. Uh, and I could find a place where I would say, oh, I haven't mentioned Fred in 18 scenes. Can Fred go in somewhere higher? Uh, and so it becomes a marriage between Nigel and my freeform writing. So that you're able to uh, incorporate the criticism without feeling criticized by it, correct? Uh, in a way, without feeling like um, the precious artist part of you is getting crushed, but in fact, it's it's helping at that point. And then, how do you put them away again? The pages and the date is just puts them is what puts them away again. Well, I want to say uh, that what what happened. The beauty of green sheets is that it gives you a track. Uh, and then you listen to Nigel uh, and you write another track. And you never lose. You know, I think one of the things that's so difficult for people about rewriting uh, is that they throw away the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, sometimes you can. Yep. Uh, you lose the, the original impulse. Uh, and by doing green sheets, you keep the original impulse uh, and you make alterations, uh, but you're always able to go back and say, this was what I initially thought. Right. Yeah. You have a record of what you initially felt and thought. It's right there and, and you can connect to it. And, yes. And what about the person who's, uh, well, we can leave it here. What about the person who, who wonders where talent comes into this equation, who are so scared about whether the talent is there? Well, I think this is an interesting question. Uh, sometimes people will say to me, Julia, aren't you afraid you're unblocking an awful lot of bad art? <laughs> and I will say, actually, I have the opposite experience uh, I find that many times the people who have been blocked by fear that they aren't good enough are actually wonderful artists. Uh, and the difference sometimes is that the artists that we um, lionize are the artists who are bold enough to step center stage. Uh, and they have frequently had, uh, well, a filmmaker I know uh, had his parents bankroll his first three features. Now, he went on to believe in himself. Right. But when I was teaching at Columbia College, I said to the faculty members, let's show the students our student films. Wow. And they said, oh, Julia, they'd never respect us. Oh, that's awesome. Right. And right. so what happened um, was that I sent away to some established directors and said, could we see your student films? Uh, and I'm thinking particularly of George Lucas, whose first student film you would look at it and you'd think, oh, George, why not try accounting? <laughs> right. Yes. It makes complete sense to me. And it jibes with something 
my friend, my dear friend Lawrence Block, who's uh, at 80, I think, you know, the greatest living crime writer, and, and he taught for years workshops on this stuff, and he said, you'd think that I'd be able to tell, but I can tell you, I've had people in workshops where I thought, there's no chance, and 10 years later, they show up with the most beautiful book, and so uh, it's, it's worth it to keep trying to give people uh, these tools. Um, Julia Cameron, I can't thank you enough for, I know this podcast is going to help a lot of people. I hope it points them to your work. What is the newest thing that you want to point people to? Uh, is the artist way still the best place to, uh, meet you if somebody doesn't know the work? Um, I would say yes. I, I think it's a good starting off place. Uh, but I have a book uh, coming out with St. Martin's Press. I changed from uh, from Tarcher uh, to St. Martin's following a man named Joel Fotinos, who had been a muse for me. Yes. Uh, and he left Tarcher, and I promised him I would follow him. So two years later, I followed him. Uh, and it's a book called The Listening Path. Uh, and it's a book that's coming out, uh, I think, in about six months. Uh, and it's about listening, uh, which I think is so much about what you were talking about today, uh, of trying to listen and follow guidance uh, and have an authentic experience of being led. And it, it sounds to me uh, like when you say, oh, Julia, I'm an atheist. Um, I think to myself, well, you may not believe in God, but God clearly believes in you. I'll take it. You know what? I'll take it. Um no, I believe in, in beauty and love and, and art and human beings, and, and I believe in a certain kind of magic. Uh, I, um, and I believe in the artist's way completely and in the morning pages and the artist date. And uh, it might be overstating it to say, to say that these tools saved my life, but not by much, not overstating it by much, really. Um, they changed completely changed the course of my life and um uh, my gratitude to you for taking the chance to write the book and for doing the xeroxing to make sure that uh it got out in the world uh my gratitude is immense so thanks julia and please keep going thank you all right be well uh you can't really find julia on social media people you can find me at brian koppelman go read the artist's way and i'll tell you give the artist's way to 10 people, at least uh, you would be shocked at what happens. Um, the number of people I've given it to who have written novels or made movies um, is staggering. It's a shockingly high percentage. Julia, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.